Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast by Jim Power and Chris Johns that looks at the major political, economic and financial developments around the world from a uniquely Anglo-Irish perspective. All our podcasts can be found at our Substack site and all good podcast platforms. Okay, welcome back, Jim. Latest edition of The Other Hand. And uh, lots of things that I want to talk about today, many and varied a topic, actually. Unusually, I'm going to talk about Ukraine, because the week that's in it, with the developments that we've had, I think it's time to talk about that. And I'll explain why in a moment, if it, is, if it isn't obvious. There have been attempted big developments in the oil market, which is so important for all of us in so many different ways, from the cars that we drive through to our economies, and they're still over-reliance on oil. And what's going on there is particularly interesting. We haven't talked about crypto for a very long time. um, But at the beginning of this week, we had a couple of big news events associated with cryptocurrencies. The US regulator, the Securities Exchange Commission, the SEC, issued, I think it was on Tuesday, a 101-page complaint that a cryptocurrency firm has broken the rules for years. And that's a quote. And this was, these are allegations contained in this 101 page court submitted document, I think it is, about a cryptocurrency platform. So a platform is not a cryptocurrency itself. It is a a vehicle, an online platform for buying, selling, transferring and storing cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, I guess. And When that announcement was made uh, early on Tuesday, I think Coinbase, for a while anyway, um, things that may have changed since then, was down 20%. Um, And there was also another another cryptocurrency platform indicted. Indicted, is that the right word? Well, certainly criticised by the SEC. Quite a bit of um, weak economic data, uh, mostly in Europe, but also a little bit in the United States this week, which I think is really interesting. And I want to run through that. I want to to mention the Nikkei. I'm getting 
interested in things Japan these days. It's at a 33-year high, and the only two things going on in, in markets these days are that tech stocks and the Nikkei are the only things that investors seem to want to buy. Finally, if we have time, I want to cover an article that a professor at a U.S. university that we've mentioned before, Professor Tyler Cowan, wrote a fantastic piece for Bloomberg this week, earlier this week, uh, asking the question, if the economy is so bad, why is the labour market so good? Now, this is a topic that you and I have discussed, and I think I at least briefly want to touch on Professor Cowan's answers to that question. So, Jim, if I can go to the top of my agenda, Ukraine, and explain, uh, first of all, why me? Why would I have anything insightful to say? Indeed, I, I may not. But for the best part of a year now, I've been writing a daily report for a consultancy that's based in London and Dublin, an outfit called Powers Court, summarising essentially summarising the day's news around the Ukraine war from a whole host of different perspectives. And this has meant that over the course of that year, every day I read and listen to anything that is reported on Ukraine. And that, I think, has given me a little bit of expertise as to judge what's going on. It's certainly able to filter out the good journalists, the bad journalists, because one of the things I'm doing essentially is summarising what other people are saying. And I've learned that uh, certain journalists are indeed very lazy as their, some, their reputations precede them. And they um, d don't even quote the journalists that they're referring to when they're writing up their so-called first-hand reports. And some journalists and news platforms are very, very good at this. And some aren't so good. There have been some surprises for me in terms of who uh, does have fantastic uh, news gathering, original, insightful news sources. Um, two I would mention would be the Qatari-owned Al Jazeera website. Um, that's a fantastic source of news generally, and also um, particularly on Ukraine. The other closer to home site that is really excellent across a whole host of uh, categories, actually, but particularly Ukraine, the Ukraine war, that's Sky News. There are plenty of others I could mention, and and, and the, list, the list is a long one, and I won't mention the ones that I think are absolute rubbish. But the week that's in it has seen a couple of huge developments. There's lots of chatter, unconfirmed it has to be stressed, but very loud chatter that U Ukrainian counteroffensive has started. We've been waiting for this for months. It was originally anticipated as the Ukrainian spring counteroffensive, and uh, that we're now in the summer. And it appears uh, to many people that it started in June. The Ukrainians won't confirm this in any kind of formal official way. I think for obvious military reasons, they want to keep the Russians guessing and they will continue to do so. In response to this, as it's described, Ukrainian counteroffensive, a very big hydroelectric dam has been destroyed in Ukraine and with devastating environmental and personal consequences for the people caught in the floodwaters. It's also hampered the that, that Ukrainian counteroffensive in that region because the fields have gone from being firm to being uh, either waterlogged, flooded or just boggy. And it remains to be, remains to be seen whether that will prov provide a massive hindrance. But initially, it, 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 the question had to be asked, who the heck benefits from blowing up a dam? And the FT on the day that the dam was blown up basically came down on the side that the Russians had to have been responsible because they stand to gain the most. But they also stand to lose in, in a number of ways. First of all, there's the negative publicity, which, of course, doesn't count for much for them these days. 
Um, it is what I think rightly being described as a terrorist act. It also flooded uh, their own positions that, and, and they've had to move their own defensive lines. But most critically, it, it interferes with the water supply for Crimea, the area of Ukraine that they occupied in 2014. And it may make it more difficult for them to hold on to Crimea, some analysts think. So the, the consequences of this are absolutely massive. And the time that we're speaking, I suspect the news flow is going to continue and the, the situation will evolve. But it, it probably means that the Ukrainians are going to have to rethink their counteroffensive. The Russians are going to stand accused of, of, a, of a terrorist act. Um, the, the, the situation in Ukraine remains extremely dangerous uh, for all of us, not just the Ukrainians. Um, Putin is betting at the end of the day that we, you and I, and in particular the Americans, and in particular American Republicans, are going to grow bored with the Ukrainian war. We're going to get war fatigue. And that next year in the US presidential election, if the Republicans regain the White House, that aid for Ukraine will start to dry up. And the, the, the people that are, the intelligence people that I managed to have some contact with reckon that at that point, uh, if Putin hasn't been kicked out of Ukraine by then, um, and most people I speak to think that he won't be, um, because it's just too big a job for the Ukrainians. Nobody's quite sure, it has to be said. Nobody's making that prediction with any great deal of confidence, or indeed with alacrity. Most people I speak to would love to see Putin kicked out. But he will declare victory once the, the aid for Ukraine starts to dry up and they are unable to mount any more counteroffensives. He'll say that the 20% or so of Ukraine that he has was his objective in the first place. That's his victory. And he will hope that um, he will have as much longevity as many other dictators in that position. And I'll conclude with, with a comment that um, Max Hastings, the eminent historian, made about Ukraine recently in a Bloomberg column. He said that it's very, it, there are resonances, there are read acrosses from the Spanish Civil War of the 1930s. The, the, the developed West were very reluctant to su supply Francos, the Putin of his day, if you like, in Spain, his opponents with, with assistance. They weren't willing to see him defeated because they were terrified of escalation. Sound familiar? A long story short, Franco prevailed and survived until the mid-1970s. And Hastings thinks that that's Putin's plan. So sadly, Jim, at the moment, I think that this conflict has an awful lot longer to run. I have felt all along that it was impossible to see an off-ramp here for Putin other than to keep doing what he's doing. I would be really fearful if the Western interest in Ukraine and providing aid actually dissipates at any stage because uh, I, I think that would just pose so many fundamental questions about the future of humanity, uh, the role of China and so on. Um, I have to say... Um, I think the UK political system has been really to the forefront in pushing aid for Ukraine because I think the UK political system, as much as uh, we might like, and you particularly would like to criticise it, actually I think the UK political system has performed very well. Uh, Rishi Shunak is in Washington this week and apparently the key message he's going to be given to the political leadership in the States is that we really... The West is really going to have to continue to fund Ukraine because if, you know, if Ukraine eventually seeks to renegotiate a peace deal with Russia, um, it has to do so from a position of strength. And the only way it can do so from a position of strength is if the West continues to 
um, funded. So I think the, the stakes are really high now. There was an interesting piece uh, written by somebody called Hal Brands, who is the Henry Kissinger Distinguished Professor of something or other at Johns Hopkins University, in which he referred to an article a few years ago by somebody called Brett Stevens, a New York Times columnist. And Stevens at that time was writing about the broken windows theory of policing. And he was taking the uh, zero tolerance thing that went on in America for a while, in New York in particular, but also other American cities, that the theory was backed up by a load of evidence that if you ignore petty crime, you will encourage the growth of serious crime. And that if you tackle petty crime, uh, serious crime will fall of its own accord. So you ignore petty crimes at your peril, is this broken windows theory of policing. Back a couple of years ago, this guy, Brett Stevens, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, said that he thought that we were ignoring the petty crimes of both the Russians and the Chinese. I use the, the word petty very carefully there. In letting Putin getting, get away with what he got away with under Obama, for example, in, in Syria, letting the Chinese get away with what they get, do to people like the Uyghurs in, in their jurisdiction, he regarded as being both uh, ethically and morally wrong in their own right, but dangerous from our own perspectives as well, because it just... Uh, just as petty crime leads to serious crime, these, in a geopolitical sense, tragic for the individuals concerned, but in a ge geopolitical sense, not the biggest deal in the world, letting them get away with it, setting red lines as Obama did in Syria and, um, and not doing very much about Putin's annexation of Crimea, all that kind of stuff leads to just bigger problems. And Stevens, a couple of years ago, actually forecast that Putin would go for another country and try to take it over as a result of being allowed to get away with these smaller infractions over the last couple of decades. And the country that he nominated actually, I think, was Lithuania. So he got the right idea, but the wrong countries. But that doesn't invalidate his analysis. And Hal Brands, who was picking up on Stevens's ideas about broken windows, was pointing to countries like South Korea and Japan, who are very hard-headed about this. They they won't get bored with the situation in Ukraine. They won't get war fatigue because they firmly believe in these kinds of ideas. And in particular, they think that whatever happens in the end game for Ukraine will eventually wash up at their doors and that they, they really are committed to Ukraine prevailing um, in their war because they think that if Putin is allowed to win in any shape or form. It'll encourage the Chinese to go for the various things, not just Taiwan, but other things that they are uh, aiming for in, in, the, in their region. So they really are very, very keen to make sure that what, what happens in Ukraine stays in Ukraine and that Ukraine prevails. So different attitudes around the world to this. But one of the things over the course of the next 18 months that is so, so critical for all our futures, actually, in so many different ways, but not least in the Ukraine theatre of war, is what happens, A, to the American political system in the US presidential election, and what happens after that. Will America start to get war fatigue? I think my own perspective on this, Jim, which I suspect that you share, is that we sincerely happen, hope that that doesn't happen. I, I noticed that the World Bank's latest economic forecast is out this week, okay? The World Bank now expects the world economy to grow by 2.1% this year, up from 1.7% that it was predicting in January. 
And it's attributing this to greater than expected resilience in the major economies. US economy is now forecast to grow by 1.1% this year. A half percent was the forecast back in January. The Eurozone was back in January forecast to be flat this year, now expected to expand by 0.4%. And for 2024, growth has been revised down global growth from 27 to 2.4%. And that downward revision is really attributable to the lagging effect of the interest rate increases we've seen to date. So here we are, you know, we've spoken about the resilience of labour markets in the face of these massive global economic headwinds. Uh, there's a little bit of optimism creeping back in again. And I think this has to be put in context, the sort of growth rates that we're talking about for this year and next year are less than half what you would regard as a normal level of economic activity. So it's a strange world out there at the moment, Chris. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Yeah, very much so. And I think that speaks to, in part, the Tyler Cowen article that I referenced in my intro. But you talked about the World Bank putting their economic forecasts up a touch. We used to say that anything under 3% for world growth was actually a, a, a global recession, that definition in a different way again. But let me just run through very quickly at a high level without quoting too many numbers. That's your gig, not mine. Um, the news flow over the last few days. Eurozone retail sales unexpectedly flat. Eurozone construction PMI, Purchasing Managers Index, weak. French construction sector shrinks the most in five months. German construction sh shrinks for the 14th month in a row. And interestingly, from that inflation and economic activity point, that German construction contraction also was accompanied by the first decrease in construction costs in Germany in 14 years. Spain, industrial output unexpectedly falls. These are all headlines. German factory orders unexpectedly fall. U.S., Institute of Supply Management Services, the 80% of the US economy that is not manufacturing, unexpectedly weak in recent days. Uh, one of the few bright spots in terms of all of these headlines, believe it or not, well, I think you would, Jim, is that Ireland's services sector was still showing strong growth, a little bit of uh, a reduction compared to the previous reading, but still showing very, very healthy growth. So we've got all of these second line, let's call them second rather than first line economic indicators coming in, uh, not catastrophically weak, not, not screaming depression or recession or anything like that, but certainly coming in on the weak side. And that segues nicely into that article that I referenced earlier by Professor Tyler Cowen, asking the question, if the economy is so bad, why is the labour market so good? Because as we have talked endlessly now on this podcast, uh, the, the 
the, the recession hasn't arrived that was widely forecast. Overall, macroeconomic forecasts are either stable or being revised up. You referenced the World Bank there. And it, the labor market is the one economic indicator that everywhere keeps holding up. And this is the question. This paradox is the question that Tyler addresses. He doesn't actually have uh, a compelling answer, or at least one that is backed up by hard data, because he links it to two trends, uh, or two events, really, one event and one trend. That is the lingering effects of COVID and what that has done to labour supply, and relatedly, what working from home has actually meant to the stats. And he thinks that the structure of our labour market, albeit perhaps temporarily, has been changed fundamentally post-COVID. And working from home is the most obvious example of what he means there. But there are lots of other things going on. Uh, Lots of older people have decided to quit the workforce altogether. There's something called YOLO. Have you ever heard of YOLO, Jim? Y-O-L-O. You only live once. And a lot of people are saying... Uh, sod this for a game of soldiers, I am going to take my retirement early. So a lot of older people have disappeared completely from the workforce. Where they're getting the money from remains to be seen, whether or not they'll be attracted back in. But um, the labour market has changed. So Cowan concludes that all of the old correlations that we use, that we base our forecasts and our analysis on, they don't hold anymore. And that we really should have expected the unexpected, which is what has happened, because I think that we've had some, you know, nearly two years now of every single month in the US, labor market data has topped the most optimistic expectation. So the, the, num- the actual number is not even within the range of forecasts. It's outside the range of forecasts. So we're not just getting it wrong. We're getting it wildly wrong. So um, he thinks that it's going to take an age for this to settle down into any kind of recognisable pattern. But I think that we are starting to see signs of slowdown on both sides of the Atlantic, not um, massive weakness, not recession. But certainly if this is a recession, as so many people still seem to think, um, this is how it starts. But with data gradually getting weaker, it's only during sort of financial crises or COVID type pandemics that economies fall off a cliff. They only ever gently decline, usually in terms of business cycle history. So certainly what we're seeing at the moment, I think, is consistent with the start of something, whether it's a pause or whether it's an actual recession. I'm not going to say because I'm not an economic forecaster, thank God. Um, But I do think that this paradox of the strong labour market and the weak overall economy is likely to continue. And the way it gets resolved, I think, or at least the, the most likely way of it being resolved is the economic weakness will eventually but perhaps not for yet for some time, translate into labour market weakness. That's very tentative, of course. Um, I don't know what you think, whether you agree or disagree. I guess one of the most remarkable things over the last 12 months has been uh, we've seen an absolutely dramatic tightening of interest rate policy everywhere, 3.75% in the euro area, 5.25% in the States, 3.75% in the United Kingdom and so on. So it's it's been a dramatic increase in interest rate policy and yet the economic effects of that are still proving really slow to feed through the system. Sorry, I should have said 4.5% in the case of the UK, forgive me. The point is that 
economies and the World Bank is saying this, they're proving much more resilient in the face of all of this stuff. And I suppose the collapse in energy prices um, has certainly contributed to that, the reopening of the Chinese economy, albeit the growth isn't exactly stellar there either. But it's 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 holding things up. But the labour market is the biggest surprise of the lot. Um, you know, most economies, most businesses dealing with difficulties in recruiting, retaining workers, uh, wages are under upward pressure. It really is a seller's market as far as labour is concerned at the moment. Uh, but y- y- you'd have to think, if you look at the logic as to why companies are still holding on to labour, um, I think there has to be an element of labour hoarding going on. It was so difficult to hire workers in the first place that Many companies are reluctant and they're sort of holding on in the hope that actually things will be better uh, down the road. And there's a reluctance there. But, you know, at some stage, you'd have to think that that reluctance will weaken and that you will see a loosening of labour markets around the world. And from a central banker's perspective, that's exactly what they are trying to engineer and hope for at the moment. And the dilemma they face is that these correlations have broken down. And one of those correlations is that higher interest rates leads to weaker economic activity, which leads to a weaker labour market, which puts downward pressure on wages, which reduces costs, which reduces inflation. That's all out of the window, is Tyler Cowan's point. And the the absence of these correlations is the big puzzle. What will be re-established when normality, if it ever is, or what will the new normal be? My simplistic view is that you can't have economic weakness forever without it translating into labour market weakness, but maybe it'll just continue for a long period of time. Another indicator for me that things aren't robust in the underlying economy, and of course we know the labour market is strong, but the the underlying economy isn't that strong around the world, Um, and that's been the reaction of the oil markets to the latest announcement from OPEC. Last weekend, Saudi Arabia announced a million dollars a barrel oil uh, output cut to try and get oil prices back to where they want them to be, which is $100 a barrel. And they're currently in around $70 to $72 a barrel. And the market reacted last Monday a little bit. Prices went up 1% or 2%, but that was it. And then um, by Tuesday, Wednesday, they were falling again. So it had hardly any impact. Now, the oil market is just like any other asset price. It can do its own thing for reasons that got absolutely nothing to do with fundamentals to do with supply and demand and all the rest of it. But eventually, supply and demand does have the biggest influence, of course. And I think that oil traders are betting that the demand for oil is going to stay weak. And if they're right that the demand for oil is going to stay weak, that must be because, at least in part, the overall economy in the world is going to be weak um, because there is obviously a positive correlation between economic activity and oil demand. So I think that it's a very incomplete jigsaw puzzle But there are some new pieces on the table which are starting to fit together that says that the underlying economies around the world are a wee bit weaker than expected. And if that were to continue, I would have expected the um, labour market puzzle to begin to resolve itself. But it is, admittedly, as I say, and as Tyler Cowan says, a real, real puzzle. Because if the past had been a good guide to the future, the labour markets around the world would be a lot weaker than they actually are, Jim. Yeah, absolutely, Chris. You mentioned in your introduction about the Japanese equity market. My memory tells me, and I I may be proved incorrect on this, I haven't checked it up, but my memory tells me that on the last trading day of 1989, 
the Japanese Nikkei closed at about 39,989, which was a record high. And then over the next 20 years, um, it went into free fall, basically. And in the last couple of years, it has started to recover again. It's now trading at just over 32,000, well off the highs um, during the bubble period in the late 80s. And, and I guess there is an instructive lesson in when a bubble bursts, how long it can take uh, for previous levels to be reattained. How do you assess equity markets generally at the moment, but also the stellar performance of the Nikkei, given that a lot of the structural problems that actually caused the Nikkei to fall in the first place are still very much in evidence in Japan, particularly the demographic piece? I'm I'm not an expert on Japanese equities by any stretch of the imagination, Jim, and I wouldn't pretend to be, but my sense of what it is is that the uh, bursting of the bubble just went a wee bit too far in Japan and that old-fashioned concepts of stock market value, cheapness, these shares in Japan, just became too cheap. And for reasons best known to themselves, global fund managers finally realized that and started buying Japan simply because it's cheap. And sometimes that's the right way, perhaps the only way to buy assets is to not spend your time worrying about the future of the economy and interest rates and all that other thing, all those other things we talk about, is simply to wait for something to get absolutely cheap and then buy it. And lo and behold, over the last few months, in particular, Japanese equities have been stellar. They're now, they're not at their old highs. You were right about that one, Jim, but they are at a 33-year high. The only other equities in the world that really are doing well are tech companies that the market, the investor, thinks are exposed to artificial intelligence. So we've got another tech boom going on in terms of share prices, at least. And there is a debate about whether this is just like the dot-com bubble of the late 1990s that burst in March 2000, or whether there is something more fundamental going on. My money is that there is something more fundamental going on, but we have yet to establish just who are the winners from AI are going to be. But I'm pretty sure there are going to be some very, very big winners. So my forecast that I began the beginning of the year with for the S&P 500 was that it would end the year roughly where it began. Um, it's now about, the, at the time that I'm speaking, about 5% higher. So I said it would end the year at 4,000. It's currently about 4,200. I'm sticking to that, Jim. Okay, Chris. Uh, listen, fascinating discussion as always. Look forward to talking again. Cheers, Jim. Thanks a lot for that. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.